podcast that investigates the experience of self, the events that have shaped our world, the people that we have become, by focusing on the person first. So, Vianne, what's your earliest memory of somebody who was good at life? Ah, oh, it's got to be my mum. My parents emigrated um, to the UK in 1979. They're from Iraq, uh, both qualified doctors. And um, I actually didn't know this, but for the first four months of my life, my dad looked after me whilst my mum got her medical... She finished her medical, medical qualifications here. So, you know, mum, what an incredibly strong, beautiful, organised woman who just was so good at, at life... And that's not to say there are not difficulties or she didn't face difficulties or we didn't all face difficulties together, but what a phenomenal individual. Your interpretation of that statement is as important as the answer in terms of what, what does that mean to you to be good at life? What are the outcomes that you might judge somebody on to be good at that? Wow. For me, I, I guess values or, or living a life in line with your values is something that resonates and that can mean sticking to what you believe in it can mean fighting for what you believe in it can mean dedicating your life to the things that are important for her it was career to some degree and and home life to some degree and um, that probably is similar and reflected in those who I would view as successful in the world so it's not for everyone to be materially successful but perhaps it is if they define their mission as X, Y, Z, maybe it's, it's material success or power or influence in a certain sphere, or maybe it's uh, bringing some kind of peace or knowledge to the world that they feel they need to bring, then that, in alignment with their values, would be something that I would rate, I guess, as success. Is there any difference between your mum's values and yours? Mm. I think there's a great appreciation that she came from a different world and a different time. I think fundamentally our values are very similar. I think being a woman now is different from how it was to be a woman for her her time. And I think to some extent her views were ahead of their time. So yes, there's been a lot of learning, but I would say that in terms of the aiming and the desire to try and be honest, to try and do the right thing, to do things quickly, efficiently, and for the right reasons, I think they are still very much aligned, yeah. yeah. Well, so what, would you, what does it feel like to be a woman in, in these times for you? I think that this is a very interesting time because the world is uh, confronted with a lot of shadow. So I see the political arena as throwing up a lot of shadows for us to consider in the form of political leaders or political movements which are you know they can be challenging whichever side of them you're on I think also for women we are being asked to address some of those things that we might not have addressed and or not have had the opportunity to address in the past so where do we relate to the other in terms of our own career path in terms of financial independence in terms of who we are in relationship how we understand ourselves as a whole how we have interdependent relationships rather than codependent relationships these are in my view the things that we are considering now i mean i can't speak for all women but certainly from my perspective 
how can we start to shape our worlds so that we can be complete individuals in ourselves so that we can then support the world around us in perhaps a different way yeah did you have a dialogue with your mum as you kind of grew up good question yes there's always been a dialogue strained at times especially my my epiphany really came not that long ago um 10 years ago maybe when I started to look a little bit more within myself and that's when I started to understand that it was nature that was a big driving force for me and that emotional connection that we can have with nature that really brings something that's bigger than all of us to life and so one of the one of the big turning points for our relationship my mother and my relationship was when I started traveling to faraway places um things which felt very dangerous to her, like going to the Congo and spending time in Virunga National Park. I mean, that was a real turning point for our relationship because she just was so frightened of what would happen. But for me, I just had to. So there was tension and strain there. But going beyond that, it's taken our relationship to another place so that we can have a different kind of dialogue and I can actually understand her better from my perspective, having gone through those things. She did some incredibly courageous things when she was growing up and maybe, maybe, maybe we do all repeat the patterns of our parents, but to a greater or lesser extent are aware of it. Um, And maybe that was my adventurous moment. That's got to be funny if you're a you know adventurous woman and then you have a kid and you want them to be inspired or to you know get the best out of your experiences, but you also want them to be safe. There's that kind of dissonance of you know. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I I don't know how you solve that as a parent. Yeah. Mm. Except to say, oh, if you if you look at all the. Uh, some of the great writings and maybe you look at something like the prophet where he emphasizes that your kids aren't you you just have given them flight and they need to be themselves and that's probably a very difficult thing to do difficult thing to do in relationship is not to change the other that Mm. you actually fell in love with because of who they were and then Mm. to then try and start changing them well then what do you have left of what you fell in love with it's yeah. a weird paradox. Yeah. Mm. I would say, though, my wife's definitely got a plan for me that's, wor- <laughs> that's worked. I'm much happier with who she wanted me to become. <laughs> I've kind of co-opted that now. Yeah. I'm going to thank her for that long term. Aww. It's taken many years to get there. But, uh, <laughs> well, like she must have had a very... Um, <laughs> I don't know how she did it, but it would be great to know. Because... I, I, I think, I, yeah, exactly. I so think you she can was, trial it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think she put too much stake in it actually coming off, but it has, you know, gradually had an effect, which is good. But they say in in an individual, in a partner, you kind of look for the things that you're deficit. Absolutely. And maybe that's true. I guess we have to be aware of what we're attracting uh, in another. And you've got to work out if it's a trap or if it's good for you. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. It's like Star Wars. It's a trap. It could be one or the other. Well. It's good or bad. Yeah. I mean, I think most things are you got to work it out. Yeah. Is it a trap or is it going to be good? Um, How many traps have you fallen into? Not relationship-wise, <laughs> but just in your life. How many times have you had the rug pulled? And what, what have you also learned from that? I think I've been relatively trip-up-free in, in most ways. Let me put it this way. 
our best learnings are from the mistakes that we made, what we make. In fact, maybe we have to make those mistakes in order to grow and learn. Yeah. As long as we understand that we can grow and learn from those things. And, and that's where, as we were speaking a little bit about before, if we understand that life is cyclical, like nature is cyclical, there will be ups, there will be downs, but you go through those things to the other side and there will be another day, there will be another sunrise, there will be another trick, trap, opportunity, <laughs> whatever it is, then, then just like some of the indigenous people I had time to spend with on these travels, we start to understand that, you know, maybe the traps are part of the process. Yeah. And we can't just always be on this straight up, yeah. smooth, linear path that yeah. isn't what nature is or what life is. It, yeah. it has to evolve and there'll be good times and ups and downs into the cycle of who you are so that sounds like you understand like the evolution of um you know life uh, <laughs> that's it, a it, very big thing it, to say is, well, no, you, you definitely have got a you know that seems to be quite wise in terms of understanding how how we're programmed to look for certain things that give us kind of sh short-term pleasure and all the rest of it. We're, we've got this, my favourite word at the moment is human scale. There's a human scale to our decision-making, mm. whereas a lot of what you're involved in is way beyond human scale into like 500 years, 1,000-year planning, things like that, right? In terms of the... Preservation the and conservation. conservation and, yeah. It, it's been a journey for me, and by no means am I very far along it, but what I observe is that... Uh, for me, there is meaning in being part of a really long-term legacy. So I started by falling in love with an environment. So I happened to be in Kenya and I fell in love with just the beauty of the landscape because it is so unbelievably beautiful. I remember a moment where I came face to face with a baby cheetah and it was so exquisitely beautiful that I just reflected that everything that we try and create around us buildings, the beauty industry, the fashion industry, which was a part of my life when I first began in PR, luxury goods, the whole thing. We're constantly trying to create more beautiful, more beautiful, more beautiful. But beauty, absolute beauty to me, existed in that very moment. And it wasn't anything that we had created. It was what nature had created. And so from, from that time, I started to understand that, you know, that was what I wanted to preserve, this experience, this emotional connection that you can have with the environment, which brings up a blissful feeling within you and makes you feel connected to a, something that's way bigger than yourself. And then as that evolved, I realized, okay, maybe it's not just about that, but endangered species actually a proxy for that natural landscape that they are, that, in, that the animals inhabit. Yeah. And then that became a proxy for, okay, how do we make sure that when we have 10 billion people on the planet, we can still keep some of that wildness. And then that became a proxy for, okay, we have to preserve wildness because we need some ground cover, some tree cover, some water in the earth. And if we don't preserve it, then we won't have any of that. So then that moved into, okay, well, do we have to plant trees? Do we have to preserve the Amazon? What is, do we have to make sure that the trees are there to preserve the water? So the whole thing is part of this big system. And for me, it was a journey to understand that this is a big, big system and probably Earth is just one part of it too. So, yeah, yeah it's, it is this part, this feeling of being part of a broader system, whether you feel it's 
connected to spirituality or religion or whether you just feel that it's nature yeah. that will be here for hopefully thousands, billions of years yeah. ahead of us, that for me gives me uh, a real sense of understanding why I'm here. Yeah. So you, you said spirituality and then religion and then nature. And I think you can define any of those as something, a power greater than yourself, right? So that's yeah, what God you, is. That's you, what you're, you're this, this, would, you, would you say that? Well, I think it's, it's an interesting discussion to debate uh, these things. And I think man will probably debate them forever. What is God? What is the universe? Is there an organizing force that's bigger than all of us? Um, but what I can say is that if you are in a, a landscape um, like Mongolia, or if you're standing at the top of a mountain range, or if you're in the middle of an incredible jungle, then you definitely feel like, well, I definitely feel humbled by the sheer scale of what's around us. So yeah. whether you want to call that God, spirituality, connection to something else, yeah. it definitely feels powerful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel, uh, as we were saying before, when I was in Asia, I feel that you, it sounds like a really odd thing to say but you do sort of connect with the earth and you connect with like the source energy of the earth a lot more and I feel as though because everyone is sort of trapped in their own bubble of, of where they are in more westernized cultures that is you don't really feel the need to yeah you see on the news that climate change is going on and and you see all the scary stories but until you're there and you appreciate the beauty of what's in front of you that is what makes you realize how amazing the world we're living in is and if you don't see that you don't see any part of that and you're just hearing about it through through word of mouth or politicians and on the news i don't think that really gives you the urge to to sort of you know contemplate and reflect and be like what can i do to progress this situation i think that's such a valid point and, and to have had the privilege to travel to faraway places was a great was something wonderful for me but exactly as you say you know our country you we're here in in the uk is so exquisitely beautiful god i mean i was in the hebrides um for for the summer god it's so beautiful it's just so stunningly beautiful this planet is so so beautiful and there is some connection that happens and one of the things that always touches me if i'm with uh, people who live very close to nature, whether that be tribal individuals and or indigenous individuals in in South America or or in Africa, I had the privilege to spend time with the Arawaka tribe, for example, in Colombia, and they believe they're living in this environment where they believe the rocks have something to say, the water has something to say, the landscape has something to say. Everything is living in a way that we have forgotten and they now are urging us to to remember um there's a tribe that's even it's even harder to access called the kogi indians i haven't ascended to the levels where they'll let me in yet so i keep on asking and they keep saying no but maybe one day i'll get there um but they say to us they think of themselves as elder brother and they're looking at us and they're earth keepers and they call us 
younger brother. And the only reason they want to talk to us, they have no desire to live like us. The only reason they want to talk to us is because we're screwing up the world. And they can see it because yeah. they're there in the Sierra Nevada. They're seeing it change. Yeah. Um, and they can tell us. But we, we are basically staring into our phones most of the time all day. Yeah. We're living a virtual life. And that's... <sighs> that's true, yeah. It's very distracting, and I yeah. think it's distracting. I, I, it's there to distract us if we don't make sure that we um, keep on remembering there's something else. Yeah. Who do you think we're serving um, them? It feels like we're not serving ourselves, but by staring into our phones and buying into the life that's kind of offered to people, especially the, the totem of what success is, it feels like it's like a carrot rope. You know what I mean? Like... And you came from that carrot rope background, I you did. could say, in a way. I absolutely did. And I'm so glad that I saw, I saw it. Um, spending several years in the world of luxury goods and high fashion and understanding what that is. And it's fascinating. It's, it's alchemical. I, I saw a, um, a YouTube video and I was basically almost in tears. You start off by, by talking about how it costs three pounds to make. We talked about Chanel in the office. Yeah. I, I told the guys about this. Very small amount to make it. And you said, what, what are we buying? What's the differential we're actually buying there? And who, and who, you know, who does it serve? Who's it actually for? Sorry, I joke it, that It's one. fascinating, isn't it? It is, What yeah. is driving our decisions around that? And that's partly where the research around why people are buying illegal wildlife products like oh. rhino horn yeah. um, comes from. So you know, there, are, there are some studies which have looked at this and said that rhino horn is now on the market, was on the market for $60,000 a kilo. And, you know, what is that about? It's very interesting. There are so many ways of looking at that. And I, it's very hard to judge it because honestly, I couldn't tell you the source of everything that I buy or take. I really couldn't. I couldn't tell you. Well, I know that various parts of this iPhone come from challenging places, including the Congo. If you're looking at, if you really want to look at where things are coming from and what the supply chains that we're part of and that we're fueling are coming from, then I think we're all going to have a, a, a rude awakening. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just also drop in yeah. conflict minerals? Anyone listening, Google conflict minerals and prepare to have your mind blown when you realise there's blood on the hands of a lot of these minerals. It's very... It's, it's really, really challenging. And I think that the only way to get to the bottom of this for, is for us to have an awareness of what we're doing. And that's where something like the investment industry could be so powerful. Because mm. if investors understood and I'm not talking investors as in put us put people on a pedestal put people in a room who are professionals I'm saying everyone who works is contributing to a pension fund mm. whether we might not be very close to that but we are whether you're in the private sector yeah. or the public sector and there's no reason why we shouldn't be understanding where our money is being allocated so if we aren't comfortable with conflict minerals then maybe we could say something mm. by moving the capital. Yeah. And I think that reallocation of capital could be an extremely powerful way of reorganizing things. Yeah. But it's, gonna, it's a journey. Yeah. And there's a lot of information. And where do we start? This is literally the, the, the weeks and the days that we're experiencing right now is all about data and its, its validity, its truth. It, um, it must be incredibly confusing. What's it like from your side, Nada, as a younger person, having graduated, 
coming into the working world now and and you're you're working directly with some of these large companies from a recruitment perspective but how do you disseminate truth how do you get your news (laughs) (laughs) um I don't know I think at the moment I do think sort of my generation are a lot more sort of focused on climate change and and investing in, in towards something that matters and I think they do see a bit more clarity when it comes to all the sort of social and environmental issues that are beginning to arise. But at the same time, you get the other side of that and you do get the individuals that only care about making money and they don't care how they do it. That That is what it's about. And I think for me, I, I hope, <laughs> I really do hope there will be that sort of higher lean towards VSG investing and and sort of taking away the sort of greenwashing aspect of it and to actually make those smart investments that might be able to make a difference to our planet essentially but I do hope that you know someone from my age group or anyone that's you know 25 30 plus will actually begin to to look at these issues and try and sort of change the environment that we're in because I think at the moment I'm trying to look at it in a positive manner to to hope for the best and um, hopefully that will drive change. So I think things are getting better. Um, but obviously we have to make that shift first. Well, why, can I ask, this is a really difficult question to answer, but what do you think is endemic to, to human beings that um, as soon as a new technology comes out, it's exploited? It feels like you look at industrial revolution to now and you can see what's happened with data, with facebook it always feels like whoever at the frontier of using a certain technology it always gets exploited in some way and then there's reparations afterwards you know what i mean like it could be they don't look at a chemical that uh, workers are using it could be i don't want asbestos particularly but you know anything like that yeah. it's normally um the people who have the money can then use that technology and the first iteration of it is the worst one. <laughs> and the second one so like hacking, when people hack into your phones and get personal details, things like that. Exactly. You can, you can look at that and see how that was misused before it was understood by, you know, the, the, you know, the courts and things like that or the, or the wider people it was abused. You can look at... People might look on these days of, why did anyone ever sign up to Facebook? Like, what was the motivation there? We are a phenomenally successful species and we... we evolve i mean we're we will use what we can to get ahead and i i think we are we we need to understand that about ourselves and it's hard to know always if a if a, a motivation is good or bad i wonder if it's this relentless drive for progress this relentless drive for space in a world where we're becoming more and more crowded often you know even in our friends that the traits that are the most brilliant about them in excess become things that are destructive mm-hmm. so this is part of our of the human <laughs> the balance <laughs> the human um problem right perhaps yeah i remember watching jurassic park and do you remember dr ian malcolm <laughs> dr ian malcolm played by jeff goldblum said and i'm paraphrasing you were so obsessed with what you could do you didn't stop to think if you should mm, yeah. and um that was the first time my young brain like it must have been you know mid-teens or something I was just like oh yeah that's interesting yeah we do seem to be endlessly and I think it would have been Dolly the sheep would have been around the same time or something like that maybe early 90s I can't remember Mm -hmm. and it was like this oh look at the GM products and obviously 
Jesse Modified does some great stuff as well. There's also this other view of it. It's way too complex. That's nothing about human beings. We're looking for apples or oranges when it's like, it's not as simple as that, is it? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it comes back to this idea that things are not linear and there is shadow and there is light and yeah. you don't have light without shadow and vice versa. Yeah. So I think we're always going to grapple with this. Yeah. In your life, has um, quick segue, has um, <laughs> happiness and, and then success, however we view that, has happiness and success been congruent or reflecting? Have they been separate or separated sometimes? I think it took a long time to understand for me what was happy and what was going to make me happy. And I finally realised that it wasn't necessarily what people set up for me as a construct do this and you'll be happy. Can I ask at that point who? The general the social group, I suppose, that I was in. Yeah. So, so for me, to pursue something without a, a, a moral purpose or without a bigger sense of purpose was difficult, even though that it was not difficult to do practically. There were aspects of that that didn't fulfil me. And I, I don't know, actually, even if happiness is the right word maybe it's about fulfillment and being at peace with oneself which is i guess an aspect of of looking at philosophies like buddhism and and sometimes sometimes the the pain of going through something can be strangely peaceful if you know that you've learned something or you feel that you're somehow complete in yourself whilst you're going through it or the first time i dealt with being on my own and not in relationship and living by myself for a while. That took quite a long time to get used to, but then I realised how blissful it could be. (laughs) And I suppose it's... (laughs) Whereas, you know, if society always wants you to be in a relationship and then is asking when you're going to progress in that relationship, but actually you're saying, well, hang on, actually there's something really beautiful about discovering where the completeness in in me is and I don't have to look outside and I say this by the way from a position of such privilege I mean really I I couldn't ask for a more beautiful life more wonderful people around me really you know these are these are the lessons I learned about myself and enabled me to I hope contribute more to others lives but it is as much as you've got around you it doesn't um, necessarily matter um, it, it is how you feel. There's a lot of people, and we actually look at some of those people who are held up in society as of having made it and being at the top of their game, and then they kill themselves, you know? And this has happened so much. It feels like in the last two years, so many people that um, I've looked at and admired and thought had success and were some of the good guys who were successful still weren't at peace and didn't have that sense of calm. Um, they were trying to solve, I guess, their happiness with external means, through it could be anything from drink drugs or whatever and um eventually that's that's too much on that day for them sadly and that's that's what happens but i think that's a really important thing about how you actually felt regardless of um what you have around you was there anything a like um did you discover uh, any kind of teachings or mantras or any kind of writing that gave you just immediately gave you a different perspective sure um a big path for me in helping to unite what I was feeling whether that be emotionally or spiritually or physically was was yoga and I that was a path I started when I was going through some really difficult times in relationship 10 years ago and I remember just walking past a 
a Bikram yoga studio and I thought I should probably go in because I heard the really hot hardcore. (laughs) So I thought, you know, I'm just going to try it. So, but that's where I didn't stick with Bikram, but what I did do was start a beautiful path of yoga through all sorts of different forms of yoga. It took me to many different countries. It took me to many different teachings, many different teachers. But the beauty of the practice was always like a language that you could come back to wherever you are. And the incredible thing about yoga, and this seems so trite to say, but it really does make you address your physical self and link it with your emotional self or your feelings, whatever you want to call it. And you, you, you start to understand that you can come back into yourself and into your center and that you are a physical being, you have a body and you don't have to cut that off from your mind and you don't have to cut that off from your heart. Actually, you can unite it all. And that, for me, helped to bring back this sense of, oh, I'm an, I'm an entity here, I'm a complete individual and... I can look inside and that's where I'm going to find resources rather than outside myself. That has been a beautiful path all the way through. Then I, then I discovered nature in its most glorious forms around the world. And then I um, uh, worked with an incredible teacher called Wendy Mandy who shared some of the traditional teachings, the shamanic teachings of the indigenous people around the world with me. Um, and increasingly started to understand that there are different perspectives of, on life that, that we can remember from very, very ancient teachings and are encouraged to remember. So this feeling that it doesn't always have to be growth linear, it doesn't have to be that way. That's not actually how we need to look at the world. That's not how nature is. It, mm-hmm. It's cycles. We go in cycles. There are times when it's all about rebirth and there are times when it's all about shadow and then there are times when it's all about bliss and joy and going on journeys and then there are times from see- for seeing the eagle eye view and you go around again and then yeah. suddenly you think you've learnt and then oh there's another cycle to do and you just keep on going yeah. but knowing that that that's how it can be and that that's how other people experience life from different perspectives I think is mm-hmm. is something that I've learnt much more about over the last 10 years. Do you think we should have philosophers as CEOs? Good, or, or good question. At least maybe like um, a, uh, like a second in command, you know, someone like a chief of staff whose job is literally just to bring about the teachings of philosophy. And it could be the, you know, of the world. Um, you know, it could be somebody like yourself who's travelled the world and can tell you how other tribes think on problems and things like that. It doesn't have to be just a pure study of Eastern or Western philosophy. What do you think? Do you think that would make people That's better owners question. of businesses? What? What do you think? Yeah. You think, yes. I Googled it and I found that Alan de Botton wrote an article for the FT about five years ago, literally making this case. Oh, really? And I was like, nobody has ever said that to me. I've never read it anywhere. He's obviously going on about it and because he's, I think he's fantastic. The School of Life is a you know, great um, YouTube channel as well. It's worth checking out. Um, probably where you know, I've got most of my philosophy knowledge from, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all just from there. Um, but it's, um, it, it just made me think when I've interviewed, I've sat, the reason I say this, Vian, is I sat down again uh, with a head of global fixed income for one of the 10 largest companies in the world. And I asked about um, how do they factor into, the, it was like a 50, 50 cell matrix um, uh, structure, he said. This is how we manage fixed income globally. I was like, oh, okay, great. I said, so, um, 
how do you factor in the global climate change if, let's say, California goes underwater? And he said, oh, well, you know, we'll factor that. Be, there'll be a cell for that. And I said, won't that change the entire structure of the thing that that sits on? Because it's not global warming, it's global catastrophe and chaos. That was the be- worst branding exercise in the world. They should have just said, it doesn't mean warm, it just means absolutely uncontrollable, crazy stuff happening. And I said, won't that change it? He went, no, we've got some very smart people there, Ben. You know, don't, don't worry about it, it's all good. I'm the CIO. And then that person left, and <laughs> I went to meet his replacement, and he said that's exactly why he shouldn't be in that type of role, which is people who don't understand the systemic change of what we're headed towards, what we can't, well, it's irreversible already, a lot of it. It's a human scale issue. They think of their life as slightly different from their parents and their parents' parents. They don't see, they don't stand back and see the entire change. So I thought, what are they motivated by? Growth fetish kind of thing, this Mm. acquisition of money. I I can't imagine anyone needing more than, you know, we talk about this in this office, like if you need more than a million pounds, right? So you've got your house paid off and you've got some, a certain amount of income and you need to buy another boat or you need to buy, I mean, if, if, Boating is your thing. Buy a boat by all means. You know, and certainly have a passion. I think that's a thing that's deficit in a lot of people who are in in one of those positions where they have more money than any kind of. But I, I just wonder because you get to work and, and talk to these people firsthand, and how much of what they do in the world through their business or through their influence, power, money is something they've really thought about, or is are they literally just pinballing from one thing to another without thinking about it? Such a good question, and, and it's this dichotomy of that, that it brings into focus, which I always struggle with, which is how should business and non-business function, and where's the line, and who should take responsibility for setting a moral code, or you know, and and may I also just say, you know, not every I try and make the best decisions I can from a moral perspective, but you know, we it's difficult always to do that or to know what is right in these contexts. So if you're lucky to have leaders, maybe it's about leaders who have a sense of balance, values, doing the right thing and purpose, maybe that's the the sort of holy grail. So, you know, I'm lucky that I work in an organisation where we have a leader who is a bit of a philosopher. There's this sort of Buddha-like quality about this person's vision and how they relate to people within the firm. And I think ultimately, much as, a co- much as the corporation structure would like us to fit into, into our individual roles, into our individual cogs and function as if we were a machine, we're humans. And we're always going to battle with these grey areas. And we just have to, in those circumstances, uh, it's almost like being magnetised by your North Star or whatever. You have to know what your North Star is and just keep moving in that direction. And with the whole money piece, how much is enough? This is an interesting question because for some people, acquisition is very important. Uh, For others, um, for me, what... What's important to me is that you know, I want to put, I want to start a philanthropic foundation where I, I know exactly where the money's going and I want it to plant trees. But that's just my view on the world. I mean, I don't want a big diamond engagement ring because I just, I don't really see what that's going to, what purpose that's going to serve. I'd rather just give that 
money to the tree fund or you know my my partner's 13 year old daughter said this year she doesn't want a birthday present she wants to to give it to an amazonian charity to plant trees herself so i guess it's whatever you yeah. <laughs> you think's going to be meaningful in the world yeah and i think <laughs> i think we should have a hard stop on uh, judgment of what those people want because i would want someone leading my company like that like if i i actually i was still talking about this with um, my wife and this all comes down to implementation doesn't it like we can sit here in a room and talk about this and all agree we believe in this but then you we have to go away from here and we have to get on with the rest of the world yes and so i could be in a group of people and uh, my wife could say ben doesn't believe in diamond wedding things and things like that so he bought me this and there'd be like some people laughing probably going oh Shame you didn't get the so-and-so. I'm hoping that's replaced it. And <laughs> it's all about the implementation into the world, right? And then I think people still act on a day-to-day basis in their work from this kind of... So from a bit of shame and embarrassment a lot of the time and a bit of fear in, in how they're going to be perceived and viewed. And then also how they then progress through a company, their career. I, I see people all the time making the wrong decisions because... How kind of the, I, I'm, my life is quite simplistic. We work in a small company together. We all talk day in, day out. We all talk about our, our careers, our futures, our work, our, everything. We share everything. But that's because we're like 11 people. It's really easy to do that. And it's really difficult to do that with 600 people. And at some point, you have to give that up. And the more I see people giving that up and going into these larger companies, the more I see them sacrificing what they really believe in genuinely and there's a lack of trust that then develops throughout that. You must, that must be a whole part of your world is, is working through trust and showing people the reality and not getting them to, to buy into what they think is important, right? So is that a big part of it? It's, uh, I don't mean in, in I mean, the company you work for, I mean in the external representation and when you, when you engage with big corporations. Yeah, and I think however hard it is and whether that's in work or whether that's in personal relationships sometimes the hardest thing is to tell the truth and sometimes you really have to and work out how to communicate that in a non-aggressive way that's the other part of it because we can have truths and we can say them um but you kind of need them to be received mm. quite right yeah. exactly because if if someone puts up a wall and you can't get through to them yeah. then well, you haven't moved moved You're anything forward, yeah, right? exactly. so yeah. You know, if you look at Marshall Rosenberg's Nonviolent Communication, for example, I'd urge everyone to read it. He was an incredible... Actually, this is a recommendation from Tim Ferriss to listen to the audio book where he's narrating. Marshall Rosenberg studied nonviolent communication. He looked at how you can relate to people, the, the basic themes of relatability, and, and fundamentally the trust issue and the security issue and you know, how we operate in big firms and, and the security that operating in a big firm provides us with sometimes. These are all issues that we are working through as human beings. So companies have to be successful to support individuals, to be able to support a growing number of people who need work, to support the system so that we can all be able to contribute to a, a, a population that's growing and an economy that needs to support all of us as we get older and we yeah. live for longer. So yeah. we have to have successful companies and they probably will get big. Um, the question is, how can we make sure that we 
stay truthful and honest. And that can be very, very hard, I've experienced. Yeah. In all walks of life. Yeah. And I think as well, what what I sort of find quite fascinating is that you can communicate with someone and you can put your point across in the most effective way. But I think some people are just so opinionated and stuck in their own head, it can be very difficult for you to get your point across to someone who has that sort of mentality where it's their beliefs or no beliefs at all. And I think that could potentially stem from the politicians or or the news and things like that. Obviously, you know, at the moment with with Brexit happening, you're either at one end or the other and there's no compromise in the middle. People are just fighting each other's battles and there's no sort of compromise. And I think what is very difficult now is to actually communicate something effectively. That's one point of it. But the, the other main point is for actually to listen to what the other person is saying and try to develop an understanding of that. And I think the second part is what I think, in a way, humans are actually lacking, that sort of having that understanding and listening to someone's point. So I think to your point around understanding that we all come from a subjective place, no matter how objective we try and be, mm. our view of the world will be shaped by looking through our eyes, having experienced what we've experienced, coming from the places that we've come from. And our experience will always be our experience and the other's experience will be their experience. And the important thing in my mind is that I know I can own mine and that the other one can own theirs. And how do we build a bridge in the middle? I don't have to change my perspective necessarily because it's going to make you okay with me, but let's work out what influence is appropriate that I should take or inappropriate. And I think understanding what is appropriate in various kinds of relationships can be quite helpful. So, How often do you go off-piste and just use your kind of riffing... You seem like someone who's quite natural. Don't, you don't seem like someone who rehearses. <laughs> I'm not saying you're not prepared. <laughs> but you don't seem like someone who rehearses and has a script. Do you go, do you use the kind of like uh, the comedian on stage or I'm going to just shoot from the hip on this one. This might land. This might turn the audience off. Do you ever use your kind of, um, use that in a negotiation or discussion? I guess not so much. More often it's coming back to a sense of, being centred in myself and trying as much as possible to come from that place. So I always have a sense that I want to get across whatever it need, whatever needs to be got across at that moment. And I feel very, I feel very held in that space doing that. It's important to be as truthful as possible always. So this comes from a place of hoping to be as truthful as I possibly can be about these issues. Yeah. I don't know if that helps, but... No, it does. I, I, I know, I, yeah, I understand that, you know, there's a, there's a lot more structure that you would be in in a situation of negotiation. You, maybe you don't have the licence and it's, it's, too, it's too much at stake to maybe just riff on in the moment. I just wondered how much, if you're not getting through to somebody, do you, how much risk do you take to try and just puncture that bubble and connect mm-hmm. with somebody? Like, yeah. I recently read a brilliant book, which I would recommend, partly because of the academic side of my life, which is the research around demand reduction for illegal wildlife. It's called The Craft of Scientific Writing. And this is just the most exceptional book, which helps teach how to craft a 
a scientific argument, but not actually just an argument. It's sort of saying, be mindful of what you want to convey to your audience. What are the key points you want to get across? And think about how you're phrasing things. So um, I think coming from a place of understanding the purpose of what you're doing or who your listener is, there will be different ways of putting across your view that perhaps you'd like to discuss or be received. But generally, I, I want to come from a place of empathy or listening to what the other has to say. And I think there's so much that can be said that is unsaid and so much that is unsaid, which one can read in a tone or a nuance. And, and that's where I guess emotional intelligence is really interesting and important yeah. and what I worry that we lose in our interactions online for example yeah yeah oh completely and you yeah. lose that reaction and that, that human emotion connection is so pernicious I think yeah. I've got a question that's going to sound really um, blunt go on what do you think of people who enjoy killing animals I would say and this has been a really interesting tension for me over the past five or six years I suppose when when the issues around trophy hunting and even just hunting in itself come have come up yeah so for, for myself from my own uh, perspective I would find it hard to go and go shooting I I can't I don't think I I, I mean I can't do that it's not something I want to do um, however I'm a meat eater so I need to take some responsibility for killing animals. I'm, all meats? Well, all like. meats apart from pork, because I'm Muslim. Sure. But I've also seen, for example, the trip that I just did to Scotland. I understand that as part of the land use, hunting, grouse hunting, sure. stag hunting, is part of how that land yeah. is maintained. Um, I also understand the arguments around trophy hunting, I don't understand the psyche of, of someone who kills themselves, but as a meat eater, I see so many grey areas that, are, <laughs> yeah. that it's very I difficult. live in that constant contradiction of one week we're fully vegetarian mm -hmm. and I'm like, why on earth does anyone eat a cooked carcass? And then I'm like, burger or ham roll. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, don't, I don't sit there and connect what's actually happening. I think that's exactly it. Is how do we... How do we connect? And to some extent, Nadia, it's the same. It's the same point you make around climate change. So how do you, how do we connect ourselves with these things? Mm. It's hard to do. Right? It is because we live, yeah, in the centre of you know, the futuristic Western world of. It, it's very difficult to do, especially in the centre of London. I would say as well, where you can literally have anything you want within an hour, pretty yeah. much, if but you desire. If you, it. Yeah, go on. Sorry, no, but with the whole. Um, obviously vegan movement again I think it's my sort of age group that that tends to be sort of leaning towards that I think in London it could actually be a lot easier for you to go vegan because the options are there oh, yeah, there's so yeah. many different vegan pop-up places that are coming up and different vegan options in, in shops and restaurants and but when you go to a more sort of secluded area in the country and even there's there's a massive sort of socio- um, socioeconomic difference between that as well. It's so much cheaper to buy a pack yeah, of chicken completely. nuggets, for example, compared fresh, to yeah, organic buying, food. you know, six different types of vegetables, lentils, pulses, 
And then there's also the mal- malnutrition element of that as well, because people will be uneducated of where to get their protein from. So unless you're educated on the vegan diet and if you know where to get all your different proteins from, then it can actually do more damage than good because, you know, you're not getting all the nutrients that your body needs. But this reminds me of, we go back again just to what we might have forgotten now that we're in this sort of modern, postmodern world. And one other thing I would recommend to anyone to listen to um, is a series by Joseph Campbell, who was a mythologist, called The Power of Myth. And he... Have you have you heard it, Ben? I have, yeah. yeah. He also... He did another book. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Um, yeah. The Hero's Journey. Is that The Hero with a Thousand Faces? Hero with a Thousand Faces, yeah, exactly. that's the one, yeah. And in this, one of, one of the themes that he discusses that is this, you know, the original uh, rituals around eating meat... So this was all part of the cycle of life and death. And, and the hunters had to come to terms with killing another life, which they didn't necessarily think was better or worse than themselves. That's I mean, really when, I, when I see a, a magnificent lion, I, I don't, I, how can I possibly think I am a better creature than that? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it, I can't. I don't. Yeah. We, we, you know, we're equals, if not, you know, things <laughs> superior to me. Um, but the point being that they had to somehow rationalize the killing of these animals. And what they did was performed a ritual. So when you killed the animal, you gave its blood to the earth yeah. so that it would grow again, as if yeah. like a plant. Yeah. You know, you yeah. give the, you thank, you thank the, the creature, you thank the soul of the creature, you thank um, the earth for providing this nourishment to you you pour the blood on the earth it grows again it's a gift to the earth and then you you're you're connected to the cycle of your environment yeah and for me that was so powerful yeah and it's all this sense of okay what i it's so hard for me to understand what my impact on my environment is i i i know i need to reduce my carbon footprint but what to and how you know Where's the information coming from around that? So, yeah, from the meat-eating question, again, it's all part of this cycle of yeah. how we connect to our environment and how we're accountable to, yeah. to, to the rest of our community and our environment. Yeah, that's definitely changed, I think, in public perception over the years of uh, the company selling the goods, the person buying the goods, um, the money that's derived from that, and the kind of the relationship we all have. It feels very separated. It's historically, it felt very separated. Well, we're doing this, and you're the suckers buying it. It's like mm. people throwing away um, those old um, CFC cartons. Of, right. You know, it's like how on earth did anyone ever say to McDonald's or any of those companies, "That's fine for you to sell it in that," and it's got to come. You know, that idea of like them being separated when it's it's the whole world that's being fucked up by everyone's relationship together, but not under not being aware they are connected. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. That, you, do you think it's going in the right direction generally? Can you see things changing and more connections being made and more responsibility being taken? The thing that comes to mind immediately is, is looking at the very heart of it, being the relationships that we have perhaps with our significant others or our immediate communities. So the more I think we move down this road where you're meant to be in a particular structure of relationship where the other is meant to be everything to you. Esther Perel says we're in this situation where your significant other is meant to perform all of the duties that the tribe previously 
performed. So they're supposed to act with the same advice as your grandmother might. They're supposed to be your best friend. They're supposed to be your lover. They're supposed to be your confidant. They're supposed to be all with how much time do we have to do this in the day? <laughs> Maybe an hour, in, you know, 15 yeah. minutes at the start of the day and 45 minutes at the end. Yeah, yeah. So this idea that how we are in community probably does or how we are with our significant other and the sorts of relationships that we have there and what we're expecting of each other and taking responsibility for ourselves as individuals actually is is as important in connecting to our community and all of the connections that spiral on from that or out from that as the really, really big piece. So I guess what I'm saying is let's start by looking at ourselves and how mm. we how we are in relation to ourselves and then how we relate to our other and then how we relate to community and then how we relate hopefully to the, the outside world will potentially be affected yeah, yeah. I think that's a good plan yeah I mean I don't I, I remember asking my CEO how does he deal with everything around him and all the people who are asking him to do things and he said look just do what I can do with those who are around me in my immediate circle yeah. and I give what I can give whether that's time or advice or or a, or a joke or a yeah. smile or whatever it is yeah. in my immediate circle and then I just have to trust that it you know out. it will ripple out yeah, yeah. we've got to change ourselves inside yeah one by one yeah and I think I think that's it I think that is the sort of grassroots stage for change just sort of taking small steps and you know using a reusable coffee cup rather than a paper coffee cup or a glass container rather than a plastic and just making small changes. And that in turn will obviously see the more um, sort of unreusable materials that will deteriorate within the, the need in the market. So I think once we start generating small steps to make change, obviously then the bigger players will respond to that because they're seeing less demand for these toxic chemicals and They'll see an increased demand for, you know, all these reusable elements of things that we can use. And I think that's where change will be made, is in the small steps that individuals contribute. Well, that's the great thing about social media is um, companies are hyper-vigilant as to their profile. So obviously the downside of that, you know, like with the Me Too movement, you've got, you know, companies kind of washing themselves and saying or greenwashing themselves for ESG and all these different kind of things so you've got the posturing part of it but they will actually effectively end up making the real in systemic changes you, you might hope that will follow there because they'll be shamed publicly shamed into doing yeah. it that's one of the good things about public shaming yeah. <laughs> there's lots of bad things about it as well you kind of answered a little bit of one of my questions there which was um is uh is your spiritual life and your working life the same thing yes that's oh, that's nobody said that on this podcast. Oh really? No one. How interesting. Everyone overlaps to a max of like ten percent. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Their worlds are very separate. Um, part of this podcast was me trying to cram into. I built a company that had a function, which was search and recruitment, and I wasn't I wasn't satisfied or fulfilled. And I was like, well, I've got a platform to to work from. So we keep the lights on with the main recruitment and we try and spend as much time and effort and money on the experimental Amazing. lab side of things. Amazing, yeah. But the great thing is people like Nadia yeah. would wants to work here, not just because uh, this whole mantra of the city of, oh, you can make a lot of money doing that. It's like, 
that's just not the people I wanted around me. So I've, I've, I've tried to change the type of people I hang around with dramatically, realising that I'll be better nourished is the word I want to use but it sounds really wanky <laughs> but I'll get more out of that you know what I mean and I look at your job and look at the reason you're doing your job and I, I can see absolute parity between who you want to be and what and what all the, the things you want for yourself and the world coming through your work as well um, and I know it's not as simple as that I know, I know there's constant obstacles and change because um, but do, do you think um more people should try and demand that from their work? Or do you think more people who employ individuals should try and do that as well and you know, create this like little sandbox? Because a lot of tech companies do this. They get like 10% of their time, like half a, a Friday afternoon or whatever. They can work on any project. Wow. This is where a lot of like, the advances in technologies have come from over the years. They've come from schools and education projects that were funded. They haven't come from NASA's and those places. Mm. You know, I think it was Bertrand Russell or something like that was saying, this is, you know, if you want to see a, you know, dramatic technological change in the world, give it to the kids. Give the money and the funding to the kids to literally... I don't think he said these words. Just mess about and um, play. try play. Exactly, play. Um, well, first of all, I would massively commend you for doing doing that. Then, it's not an easy thing to stick to or or build, um, especially to keep the lights on as well. Yeah. And Nadia is obviously, yeah, you know, keep a the lights shine, on. shining <laughs> example of this. Um, so, do I think companies should? find more people who um, who can be this or do this. Yeah, I think you said it there with play. Should we not encourage play? I know yeah. it sounds completely incongruent with business, right? I mean, sometimes uh, if things get too serious, it becomes <laughs> really untenable. Mm. I mean, that sounds so stupid, but we... I think if we squeeze all the joy and bliss out of life and, and the play, then we... What are we? I mean, it becomes so, so serious. Yeah. Yeah. And um, things are very serious. But we also, as humans, have the capacity to experience joy. And, and sometimes I feel like we're encouraged to look for that in the wrong places. Not wrong places, but it's it, we've got to try and understand what is joyful for us and that could be being in work hopefully it's being around colleagues who enrich you and who show you things and who can be your north star and being around inspirational individuals that can be joyful and and that can inspire and that can enable you to to do what you need to do and work joyfully and there's always going to be some bits of work which are difficult and annoying and you know, who wants to fill in a compliance form or who wants to fill in the expense system? It's, it's not fun, but there are other aspects. You know, some things you sort of... I, mean, I had a, a colleague who said, look, count yourself lucky. I had, a, I had someone who, who was a client who used to bite me. <laughs> <laughs> what? I did a, a Tim from the office look to camera then. <laughs> what? <laughs> used oh, to no, bite. I mean, just you know. How, look, do, they, how do the teeth even get around I to, to just, clamp down? I just don't know, but I mean, what had been allowed before the biting? That's crazy. But I guess what what makes people joyful is you know it could be as simple as going for a walk for ten minutes in the middle of the day. It could be as simple as 
making sure you eat properly. It could yeah. be as simple as just yeah. making sure there's some kind of balance. Maybe you work five days, 24 hours a week, but two days a week you sleep. I don't know, but but I think <laughs> it's sort of got to be... <laughs> it's going to be different for each individual. Yeah. yeah. I think if you can be connected in terms of your purpose or your spirit and your spirituality and your work, then all the better. If we get... Go on. No, I was, was going to say, yeah, Ben Ben puts a massive emphasis on this. So I obviously love going to the gym. It it makes me feel so much better. And obviously it's, you know, scientifically proven. It releases endorphins and it does make you feel so much physically better. But I'm also able to sort of concentrate a lot more. It sort of helps me go throughout the day. And Ben says we get in at 8 o'clock and he'll let me go at 9 to 10.30. So I'm actually leaving in the middle of a work day to go to the gym but it's that side benefit that other people just wouldn't see. But I think Ben, obviously doing this sort of other create stuff, and he understands that, you know, people's passions can line up so well with their work. And if you just feed into that a little bit, the reward will be a lot greater. Yeah. And I hope that companies are starting to realise that and, and, you know, offering not just an amazing sort of compensation package, but other things like a, a gym allowance or company socials or letting yourself go to the gym and things like that to actually make you know the employee feel a bit more valued and help them enjoy their work better and not dread going into work on a Monday for example yeah I mean I think we have to be we have to be diligent employees when we can be we we need to con- contribute um especially if yeah, for example, in our firm, we're managing other people's money. So we have to say, you know, is this a good use of my time? Is this is this the right thing for me to be doing now? And and hopefully you get you make those decisions to the best of your abilities as much of the time as you can make them. If if you can deliver that with a sense of joy and a sense of love or a sense of purpose, then yeah. I think it makes things happier, it makes things easier and, and you can probably deliver a better job yeah i'm gonna ask you a left field question um because we're just over our hour mark so so i could talk to you for wow, so much, that's so much flown, hasn't it? yeah <laughs> likewise <laughs> <laughs> so if i uh, if i said you have to leave your job now right and i give you 100 million i need to set up a company yeah just give me the five minute elevator pitch on what you're going to do Ooh. what would you choose do you think oh well I'd give it to you i know what i would do i'd augment a thing that already exists which is a scale up f- fund which invests in basically forestry companies which then uh, enable more tree cover to be planted we'd plant a trillion trees and this is not my idea this is a, a very inspirational person's idea so i'd just give help help augment that so we would both plant the trees but also be able to use the the forestry um products to to generate income and and sustainable jobs for the people who are living alongside these uh places so that's what i'd do what would your job be there what would you spend your time doing well i think what i've learned so the the trip to the congo was very important for me to understand because it catalyzed a whole series of other trips you you really have to go and if you can go and see something with your own eyes and see what's happening and meet the individuals who are doing the projects, yeah. that helps 
you connect with the project in a different way, but also makes, like you say, you, you try and find amazing individuals and draw them to you in your orbit. <laughs> um, that's what I would do. Yeah. I'd go around the projects. I'd, I'd look at what was working. I'd connect with these people. I'd learn from them. And then eventually maybe I would ascend to a high enough level to be invited by the Kogi um, to <laughs> Colombia. <laughs> oh, I wanted to end on that because that's a great ending. But I actually, there's two questions I really want to ask you before you go. And they're quite, again, blunt questions, may I? Please. What's your relationship with death? The tra traditional cultures, and by that I mean some of the indigenous cultures that I've come across, have a place for death that is different from the place we in our society seem to have for it. In life, there is the only certainty we have, actually, apart from taxes, is death. And I don't mind paying my taxes. I'm happy to pay taxes. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, so there are extensive rituals around it. There are stages of life and, and ritual that you go through to get to death. There are ways of processing it as a community. There is a structure um, around how you grieve. There's a structure around how you process all the different bits that are left, whether that be the material, whether that be the spiritual, whether that be the soul. Very complex, uh, I guess, structures to hold us when we're in that place that can be very difficult. And, and I'm very lucky in that I haven't, I've, I think I've only lost one person who's very important to me in my life and at a time when, you know, I could deal with it. But it seems to me that we could uh, learn or benefit from looking back at some of those structures to help us through understanding what death is. And the other thing I'd say about death is, again, in the cycle of life, things die and then things live again. And so there's this interplay between the two and there's a lot of, I sense a lot of fear around it, but mm. it, it really is the only thing that in our human experience that we know is coming and <laughs> oh, we might not know when it's coming, but. Do you think about it on a fairly regularly or not at all? My own death, you know, I've been through various processes where I've been encouraged to think about life from the perspective of a place where I've lived it and I'm about to die looking back. So what's your legacy? Yeah. What, I mean, you know, the Nobel prize story about uh, an obituary that Nobel was, it was accidentally put out and he wasn't a, a very nice that's, guy, right? Up until that time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he suddenly thought, is this really what I want to be remembered for? Wow. Is this my legacy? Yeah. And so for me, it's very helpful to, where I can understand what, what am I contributing in my life so that when I get to death, yeah. have I really, have I contributed? Yeah. And I, I sincerely hope that I can say that I have. And this is a bit of a loaded question. Some people have pointed out to me. Um, do, you, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> do you think that human beings actually matter? Yes, I think they matter because we're part of this big system. I mean, what's really interesting, especially in the early days of the conservation work that I was doing, you know, we focus on these iconic species because they are unbelievably magnificent. So an elephant, a lion, a cheetah, my God. I mean, they're just exquisite. Yeah. Jungle, you know, these larger-than-life things. But what about the part that a tiny little 
worm at the bottom of a sludgy river plays mm. in our chain of events and our ecosystem. Mm. I mean, they're not beautiful. They're probably not even known. But could they be fundamental to the system? Maybe. Yeah. So I think as part of, well, maybe, or maybe definitely. Yeah. So, you know, the, the thing that strikes me there is if we're in a world where 200 species are becoming extinct every day on average, right? Oh, Excel yeah, acceleration of extinction like we've never seen it before. Then they everything matters in our system. So so what's that doing to our system? So yes, humans matter because we're part of this system and we all are part of this system. So that is why I say to you humans do matter, but I'm not sure they matter more than anything else and, and if we're the ones causing a lot of the problems mm. it, you could argue it'd be just that we kind of expunged ourselves we might do that <laughs> i but don't actually don't think we'll do that we're pretty that we're pretty clever we might go to different planets i'm not sure do you think we will possibly have you heard of the fermi paradox no tell me long story short they believe that if there was life on other planets and they built self-replicating uh, little robots that flew to a star, got all the bits it needed, minerals, made a copy of itself, sent it on. They've gone back and done the calculations. They reckon we should have already met them. Interesting. So it's essentially, it, it kind of comes down to the conclusion that maybe it's not possible, so either there are not that many that close to us, or what it kind of points towards is that if there are any kind of human-esque colonies on other planets... They never escape what they call a type zero civilization. Sorry, never get to that stage because they kill themselves. So like type zero is they harness all the natural powers in the immediate solar system. Type one is they then live on other planets. Type two is then go intergalactic. I think it's something along those lines. But there's no civilizations and we haven't reached the type zero yet. And the argument is maybe it's inherent that we will always kill ourselves <laughs> mm. and if you look at that and you think about the iterations of how many extinctions there's been i think it's like five there's been or something like that of, of you know mass extinction of life and then you know i think the first one a trilobite or the third one a trilobite uh, you know millions of years trilobites nothing else not much else and then we're here and it's like it's got a very very long line a tiny blip and you know Maybe we'll just go pip and then just it'll continue. And I just wonder what people think about that. that they're part of that same thing. And we put so much emphasis on human beings being so fantastic. And I, I kind of think, I agree with you. I think everything else is really fantastic. It's got its natural way to things. But the concept of humans de you know, developing tools to the degree that we have done, and now we, we kind of... Can, we kicked ourselves out of the natural chain of, do you know what I mean? I see. Because of our use of technology. Yeah. And I wonder if that'll be the thing that kills us. Sorry, it sounds depressing, but I'm just curious <laughs> as to what people actually think of human beings genuinely. You know, when yeah. you stand back and look at what we've done. Yes. From monoculture, farming, sticking the same places, all the way through to industrial revolution, technological revolution. It's like, are we, we're just serving ourselves, aren't we? We're just growing. We are. We are growing at a phenomenal rate. I think, um, there, I think there'd be an AI revolution. <laughs> Terminator 2. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's true. Technology is literally taking over our lives. And I just think that if they can teach with natural language processing, if a machine can teach itself to do something, surely they'll teach itself that humans are creating all the issues in the world. 
we should destroy humans. <laughs> the end. <laughs> Do you think that we're alone in the universe, Fian? Oh my goodness, that's a question. And actually one I haven't really thought through. Gosh, I, I don't know if I have an answer to that one. No. Do you? Would you be... I don't have an answer. I have an opinion. <laughs> you have an opinion. What's your opinion? Um, I think there's probably a strong chance that there's something else. I think there is. There's definitely life on. They, they know there was water on Mars, right? And there was there was there, there was there were cells on Mars, wasn't there? A little mm-hmm. single cell thing. Yeah, or something. something. So yeah, there's probably something out there. What evolutionary stage it's at, I don't know. I'll put the links to the Fermi paradox. Put the links to your recommendations in here. Thank you. We've got a very. Um, fantastic producer who'll go through the entire podcast and scrape all the data and put in links for us fantastic so that's all all done um thank you i could talk to you so much more and i hope you'll come back maybe in series three or something if it does well so kind a real real privilege to talk to you both yeah thank you thank you thank you so much yeah